programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company's 51st season opening, June 15th. Presenting Sense and Sensibility, Peter and the Starcatcher, Grey Gardens, and Macbeth. Details at lyricrep.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, as a part of Utah State University's Year of the Arts, we're going to focus on the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, which is located on the USU campus. It's, the museum is looking forward to a grand reopening in September after renovation and expansion. And there's a new book out. It's called Collecting on the Edge, Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. We're going to be talking with uh, the museum's executive director and chief curator, Katie Leekhoven, and writer and curator and museum director Bolton Colburn, who edited this book. That's coming a little later in the program. We begin with a conversation with independent curator and a corresponding editor for Art in America, Michael Duncan. He wrote the introductory essay for the book, which is titled West Side Catch-Up, Reorienting American Art History. Here's my conversation with Michael Duncan. So West Side Catch-Up, you're saying that uh, in, the, in the essay here that uh, artists generally west of the Mississippi have not, or at least early on, did not have the benefit of museums, collectors, galleries, art schools, critical press, and so that uh, put them at some disadvantage, at least in getting well-known. Exactly. Um, you know, um, like most things, uh, the art world is a system, and it, it, it requires all those components in order for it to work, at least to work uh, for the benefit of artists. So what's, what's been happening in the last couple of decades is uh, now that we do have museums on the West Coast and on the west side of the Mississippi, um, uh, certain curators and museums are paying more attention to the artists who made work in in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, kind of before um, there was that system in place uh, to, to promote that art and to make it better known. So what's happening, what's been happening at, at Nora Eccles Harrison Museum for um, several decades now is, is uh, the, the assembly of a collection that makes a really strong case um, for the for the artists of of the west side of of the U.S. and uh, their importance um, in the bigger picture, um, so so much attention has been given to New York, to the Museum of Modern Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art, um, but they have a very East Coast idea of who the important artists of the 20th century uh, were, <laughs> and uh, what. Uh, this this book uh, of the of the collection I think shows brilliantly is how much other art there is out there and um, and uh, it makes a strong case uh, for um, a broader approach to um, American art a broader knowledge of American art. You say some of this art um, doesn't fit the isms, so it doesn't make the textbooks. Right. Well, because that system wasn't in place, especially in the 1930s and 40s, artists were on uh, in California and the, and the west side of uh, the U.S., Western artists, were kind of on their own. And for that reason, uh, didn't didn't have the, the, the stigma of going against what their teachers taught them, or um, they, were, they were just more independent-minded. So, um, and there, there weren't these tight, because there were fewer artists in cities like uh, San Francisco and, and Los Angeles, um, the artists were able to kind of go out on their own. So I, think, I really believe there's an independent streak uh, that runs through um, most of these artists, and that makes their work look really fresh and uh, really contemporary uh, today. You uh, talk about a rugged individualism. They said if there's anything uniting the styles of the earlier Western artists and later ones, it's 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 that. I guess that's that's what you were talking about there, uh, kind exactly. of a fierce independence. Yeah. And the artists draw on a variety of of sources. Uh, Ruth Asawa, she was a um, a um, an Asian American artist, um, and her work is on the cover of the of the book. Um, uh, of the collection, uh, she uh, was influenced by Mexican pottery and Mexican weaving, and that became a part of of her her practice, which was to make 
woven wire sculptures that are incredibly beautiful and uh, very evocative. They're abstract forms that hang from the ceiling. And uh, the Norcos Harrison has a, has a fantastic one that's, I, I think it's 20 feet long. And uh, she has just undergone a, an incredible vogue on the East Coast. They've discovered her at last, and her work is selling for millions of dollars. So um, George Wanless, who's the chief philanthropist behind uh, Nora Eccles Harrison, he was very clever in picking up that piece when, uh, when uh, her market was, was not at this fevered pitch. And that's been the case for a number of things in the collection. Um, George got in there with Jay DeFeo, who's an incredible abstract expressionist artist from San Francisco who worked in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, but he bought one of her major pieces uh, way back when, I guess in, in the early 90s, uh, before her market went crazy. So um, it's fascinating to see... Um, that this catch-up game um, is is happening, <laughs> and that it's actually working for for a number of these figures from the past. You and write, the museum has benefited from that. <laughs> y- yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, you write. Um, this struck me. You say of the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. You say the range and quality of the collection is unparalleled for a institution of its size. Exactly. I mean, there really are only a few other collections that rival it uh, that I know of. Uh, one is the Buck Collection, which which just recently um, University of California at Irvine has uh, inherited, and they're going to build a new mu- museum for it. Uh, but um, actually, Nora Eccles Harrison Collection, I think, is, is broader and, and more comprehensive. The Oakland Museum and the Crocker Museum in Sacramento are, are other uh, sort of strongholds. They have a strongholds of uh, Western art or Western modernist art. But uh, Noracles Harrison really stands on its own uh, with a really unique collection. And what's great about the book is I think that it will make um, more people aware that it's there. It's been kind of the, the secret treasure um, one of America's secret treasures for a number of decades now. And the museum's getting a, a, a big renovation. It's, uh, it's going to be presented uh, brand new uh-huh. in, the, in the fall, so that'll be, that'll be nice for it as well. Um, right. So, um, you know, uh, some of the artists, I guess, that uh, maybe if they'd had the budget to purchase, George O'Keefe, for example, they, they would have done, but uh, otherwise uh, they've got some really good pieces. You're saying uh, maybe you could pick out another couple of pieces. Tell us about uh, Um Sure. Um, they have an incredible painting by um, uh, Henrietta Shore, who was a uh, modernist who worked in the 30s and 40s. That painting was selected by the Whitney Museum for their millennial show. They did a millennial show called The American Century, and they borrowed that painting from uh, Utah State. Um, and it's a beautiful sort of abstracted landscape painting. They also have a, a, a real gem by Agnes Pelton, who's another... Um, Western um, abstracted landscape painter. She worked in a small town outside of Palm Springs in California, but she um, she's really kind of an alternative to, to George O'Keefe. I actually prefer her works to George O'Keefe. Um, and there's just so many uh, figures that the museum has. There's so many examples. They have a really strong collection of San Francisco abstract expressionism, a uh, painting by Hazel Smith is one of his best. He was an important teacher at the California School of the Arts in um, the early 50s. Uh, they have two paintings by Jess, he, an artist who just went by his first name. Um, and those two paintings are from a series called The Translations, and there are only 27 of those paintings, I think, and Utah State owns two of them, uh, which is really remarkable, and they're really rare. Um, they have great examples uh, from a group of artists who worked in Los Angeles and San Francisco in the 1930s um, called uh, the Post-Surrealists. And uh, they have great examples by Helen Lundeberg and Lorser Feidelson. But it's not just works from the past. They've really, um, they have some fantastic works from the 1980s and 90s. And I know there's been, uh, George has really concentrated on getting a, a, a strong 
selection of conceptual work uh, from the 70s uh, from uh, San Francisco and, and L.A. mostly. Um, but uh, the breadth, there's always something surprising, and every time I talk to George, he's discovered a new artist that I'm not quite familiar with. So he's always two steps ahead of everybody, which is really remarkable and, and makes the museum really a, a, a place for discovery. I think... Um, it's, it will be great as the word spreads and more people come to Logan to, to see uh, what's really there. It's going to be a surprise uh, for a lot of art people <laughs> who, mm. who care about uh, the his, art history of this country. So. Um, uh, you write that uh, there's, there's a danger. You west of Mississippi or out in one of these areas to you might get labeled regional. Um, exactly. But on the other hand, there's a freedom working away from the art centers. Right, right. And I think as time goes on, these uh, these labels like regionalism uh, will people will realize how kind of meaningless they are. What does that mean? You know, uh, in terms of of what this country is and of what it what this country's art is. You know, one could make a case that New York City is regional. It has its own little little quirks and, and individualities. You know, every place does, and that's what makes uh, art interesting is those individualities. So, um, uh, as we get away from that, we're able to see kind of on the broader plane of what art can mean and, and how it can can uh, communicate uh, with an audience. So um, it's it's actually uh, as as it's a slow-moving <laughs> uh, trend for um, uh, the U.S. to open up to its own culture and accept its own culture and not be intimidated by just New York and Europe. Uh, and, you know, people are becoming more aware of, of, of art from around the world. Uh, but also we need to be aware of art from Montana and Utah and Texas and and Arizona and places that that have bred really interesting artists who were off on their own doing their own thing and um, as time passes we can we can learn about these people and and see them as interesting um, uh, artists with a relevance to uh, life today well we have uh, reached the end of our time here anything else you'd like to say about the Norricles Harrison Museum of Art um, I just uh, welcome uh, listeners <laughs> to uh, take a trip over there and, and check it out. It's uh, it's it, you'll be you'll be surprised at what you find, and uh, it's it's a it's a fun place to visit. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and today's episode is part of USU's Year of the Arts. We're focusing, as you can tell, on the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, which is nearing the end of its renovation and expansion. The grand reopening is September 15th. There's a new book out. It's called Collecting on the Edge, which focuses on the museum. We heard there from Michael Duncan, who's an independent curator, corresponding editor for Art in America. He's based in L.A., and he wrote the introductory essay to this book. Coming up following a break, we'll continue this discussion, focusing on the, the Museum of Art with the executive director and chief curator, Katie Leekoven, and writer, curator, and museum director, Bolton Colburn, who edited this book. More following this break. Most of Utah's precipitation falls as snow. And while all that beautiful Utah powder is great for skiing and snowboarding, it does not hold a lot of water. Living in the second driest state in the U.S. that also has among the fastest growing populations means all Utahns need to make water conservation a habit. Researchers in USU's Department of Plants, Soils, and Climate examine the water needs of all kinds of crops and landscape plants and share recommendations through USU Extension and the Center for Water Efficient Landscaping that are helping Utahns use water more wisely. Combined, even small changes in water use can make a big difference. Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University, offering more than 70 degrees with courses available at USU campuses throughout the state and online. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. 
This episode is a part of Utah State University's Year of the Arts, and we're focusing today on the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, which is looking forward to a grand reopening in September after renovation and expansion. There's a new book out. It's called Collecting on the Edge, Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. We talked in the first part of the program with uh, Michael Duncan, who is an independent curator and corresponding editor for Art in America. He wrote an introductory essay for this book. Now we turn to the museum's executive director and chief curator, Katie Lee Coven, and writer, curator, and museum director, Bolton Colburn, who edited the book. Here's our conversation. So at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, we are um, focused on American modern and contemporary art west of the Mississippi. And Nora was a collector of ceramics, and she was also a potter herself. And so uh, in addition to correcting that story about American art, we're also telling a nuanced story about uh, the kind of artwork that one should be looking at and considering. Um, ceramics is another that gets uh, sort of left out of mainstream narratives mm. about American art. This was uh, Nora Eccles Treadwell Harrison. Uh, so who, you, who are you talking about here? Um, she she had an interest in ceramics, I think, right? She did. She um, So Nora was um, one of the nine children of David and Ellen Eccles from here in Logan, Utah. And um, she pursued an interest in art and um, studied pottery and studio ceramics and, um, and then developed a collection herself. And the museum was founded in 1982 with a gift for the building of the museum and of about 400 um, ceramics from her personal collection. Hmm. Now, I was reading here that the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art was not supposed to be a fine art museum. They, did, they didn't want fine art That's correct. in the title. Yeah, so um, ceramics is not always considered, you know, part of the fine arts. Um, and, uh, and so when the museum was founded, the committee that was, um, you know, planning for the museum specifically did not call it a fine arts museum because it wanted to be inclusive and more comprehensive in the way that we think about and approach and consider American art. Um, so, Bolton Colburn, uh, how would you situate Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art among among museums? I guess pure pure museums, or uh, what? What's unique about it? What? How does it fit in? Well, um, you know, what's unique about it really is um, you know the legacy of the of the Wallace family, and in particular, um, the input uh, that that George. Wanless has had over the last 30 years in regards to the collection. So um, that kind of continuity just doesn't, um, an influence doesn't exist um, at most you know, museums that I'm familiar with. Um, and the, the continuity of his vision um, is extraordinary, and um, that it's unparalleled, again, um, in, in museums that I'm acquainted with. Um, so what's happened really at the Norrell Eccles Harrison Museum of Art is um, the development of a really interesting collection with a, a singular focus, um, which has been to really take a look at uh, work uh, by artists that have been undervalued overall um, in the in the art world. Mm. And art- Wanless has really, you know, been able to push that along. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it, you know, it's an unparalleled effort um, because of the amount of time and the amount of resource that he was able to use during that time to, to ep- ep- explicate that vision. So, hmm. Tell us a bit about that. You've, you've, you've talked with, uh, included in the book, is an interview with George Wanless. He's been very instrumental um, you know, phrases like getting an artist before they get too expensive to include in the museum, um, putting the art in context, you know, knowing just when to include a, a given artist. There's a real art to the, to, to collecting. Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's the amazing thing about, um, about George. Um, he, uh, will not 
you know, you're not waiting around for somebody to validate uh, something, a work of art or an artist that he's um, discovered. Uh, and that's something that occurs um, and slows the process down at most museums um, in this country. Um, that is, you know, nobody's really willing to stick their neck out um, to go in a particular uh, new direction. Uh, everybody's sort of on the same bandwagon and goes in a certain direction, and, and um, that's just kind of the way it is. So George is able to sort of break away from that paradigm and um, go out and seek uh, areas in art history that have been forgotten, artists that, have, uh, that should have been acknowledged uh, in art history but haven't been, um, and he's been able to, to sort of you know, take those risks um, based on his base of knowledge and, and the research that he did. And, and oftentimes he's um, way ahead of the market. I mean, sometimes 10, 20 years ahead of the market, which is, you know, extraordinary. So um, he's been able to um, get some things for the collection that are, you know, in, you know really increased in, in terms of stature and, and, um, and value. Can you give me an example of where he was ahead of the head of the market? And I, I take your point. The, the risk is well, good, right? The, the, you know, the um, Ruth Asawa, which is, um, we have a detail on the cover of the book uh, of the Asawa, is a good, a good case in point. Um, and, you know, that was a piece that he um, picked up, you know, way before uh, she became... Um, important on the American art scene, and uh, he was well ahead of the pack on, on, on acquiring that and realizing that Asawa was, and her work was, was undervalued, and um, that piece was acquired in, in 2004, and um, it's the largest Asawa uh, in existence, and is quite a remarkable piece, and it's... Um, as I mentioned, it, it's increased uh, not only in, in value significantly, but uh, also in terms of art history. She's an important person. She um, was an interned, um, uh, interred during the war, um, World War II, as a child, and um, developed this technique for um, weaving uh, metal. It was extraordinary in, in terms of developing these biomorphic shapes, modernist shapes. So really mm. an amazing um uh, find of George's, and he, you know, he he jumped on that at a time when nobody was was looking at Asawa. Um, there's other pieces, uh, another work by Henrietta Shore, a really well-known uh, modernist. At one point, um, she was not well-known. Uh, hardly anybody remembered who she was. Um, a group of her work <coughs> became um, available. Uh, I think it was in somebody's house or garage, they discovered a, a large trove of her work, and George was one of the first people to be able to take a look at that that um, group of work and and decide <coughs> which was the best piece, and he he acquired it, and it's one of two or three of her signature pieces. Hmm. So those are a few examples. Um, he also has realized that there are certain groups or certain movements that have taken place and in the past and, and that they've been under-recognized and he's um, jumped on those too. A good example is um, uh, San Diego conceptual art, which um, was a really important contribution to conceptual art um, in this country, but, but totally under-recognized and undervalued in terms of the market as well. Mm. So he was able to swoop in and really uh, pick up a number of key pieces um, in that area as well. Katie Leekhoven, uh, do, you, do you have an example or two that you'd like to, sure. to point to? Yeah, um, a couple that come to mind. Well, first, just to back up for one second, one has to realize in terms of the, the scope of um, works that George has been responsible for helping us acquire with the museum. We have about 5,000 objects in the collection, and he's responsible for us um, uh, for about 
a thousand objects in the mm. collection. So, and this book highlights 172 works. So, a sampling right. of it's it. It's a sampling, and yes. it was it was quite a process for us to go through and make decisions about it. But in terms of um, to add to what Bolton was saying. Um, in addition to the Henrietta Shore and the Ruth Asawa, ones that come to mind for me um, are uh, Jay DeFeo. Uh, we have a piece called Dr. Jazz, and uh, that piece was acquired as one of the m- more important pieces by DeFeo. It was borrowed by the Whitney Museum for a retrospective that they had of her um, in the early 2000s. And then um, Chana Horowitz is another artist. Um, and I would encourage um, listeners to look these artists up and uh, if you've never heard of them and uh, and learn a little bit more about them. A, a more known entity in the art world that uh, comes to mind is Ed Ruscha, the piece that we have Lisp um, by him. You know, I've been called by dealers um, like Gagosin and, you know, to say, hey, if you ever are interested in you know, um, <laughs> deaccessioning that piece, we have, you know, buyers that uh, would be interested, which we would never do, of course. But um, the fact that that piece is, uh, uh, and that era of work that he was doing is just not available, period, mm. anymore. And, um, and they are going to <laughs> extreme lengths to <laughs> reach out to a museum to say, hey, if you ever are interested. So um, those are just a few additional ones um, that uh, that I would add to what Bolton was saying. But there's so many. I mean, the thing about how George collects and the way he thinks is, you know, and what I love about this collection and what drew me to want to be at this museum is that it's just this really interesting nuanced group of objects that as an academic museum, it requires you to really engage in a way that we ask a little bit more of our audience. And I think that we should as an academic museum. And we ask more of our audience by by showing works that you're not necessarily going to see in other places, but that if you give them a little bit of your time and a little bit of your attention, they'll give back to you and and you'll walk away learning something that you didn't anticipate learning when you walked in the door. And And I can say that about all of these works, you know, that are in this book, which is um, what's a little bit challenging about discussing and selecting them because Mm -hmm. there's, you know, to to speak to them because there's so many that have these, just these fascinating stories, not only about the object themselves, but even how George acquired them, you Mm -hmm. know, um, or their relationships to other pieces. And so, you know, you acquire some things and you start to get this group of objects that are speaking to each other because these artists were, you know, in contact with one another and influencing one another. And 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 then we, we need to fill in those holes and add a few more pieces to to tell that whole story, right? Um, and so there's a lot of those kind of things that are weaving this collection together to tell the, the story that we're telling, which is... Which is that um, American art is has a lot of stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, America has a lot of stories, and um, and it requires us to to scratch a little bit further below the surface um, to to really get the whole story and try to learn a little bit more. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking about the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. This episode of Access Utah is part of USU's Year of the Arts, and we are also talking about a, a book called Collecting on the Edge, um, and it features, what, you said 172? Correct. Pieces from yeah. the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art of, you said 5,000 or so? Mm-hmm. So just just scratching the surface, and we'll ask you to go to the museum. Museum reopens when? Uh, We reopen on September 15th, which is a Saturday, and there's no football game at Utah State going on that weekend. So uh, we made sure not to compete with the football team, and um, and we'll have a great, wonderful um, opening um, that will be free to the public and community. Uh, It'll start at 7 p.m. And um, and please do um, come to our website or, or sign up for our newsletter if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing with okay. our opening and, uh, and, and in general. And we'll repeat this broadcast or, or do something else closer to the September 15th, get people in. Um, I want to, for, you know, maybe erstwhile football fans who maybe would could be lured to the museum, an art museum, maybe haven't gone to an art museum, um, I'd like to have each of you, starting with uh, 
Bolton Colburn, maybe select a piece, and maybe an unusual piece, something that really strikes you. Describe it for us. Hard to do on the radio, but uh, this is what we've got, radio. So um, maybe uh, tell us about a, a favorite uh, piece. Well, um, there's one good example. Well, I'm just going to throw something out because there's so many here. Um, there's the painting by Elwood Graham uh, in the book and in the, in the exhibition called Pudding Stone from 1945. And um, Elwood Graham uh, is not a very well-known um, artist in um, even in the West, uh, not to mention in, on the East Coast. Um, however, you know he um, does have a, a piece uh, in the collection of the Whitney Museum of Art, and you know, he basically he's a forgotten artist. And um, George found his work and found it compelling, and you know got into doing some research on him and realized that he was he was fairly significant uh, in terms of, of the idioms um, that he developed or in his modernist uh, paintings. So there's a particular series that is especially um, interesting, and it's called the Putting Stone Series, and um, it was done in 1945, um, and it was done at a time when um, abstract expressionism was just uh, beginning to uh, arise um, in this country and in, San, in the San Francisco area, uh, which Elwood Graham was in. Um, uh, however, he was not an abstract expressionist. He, he did these really interesting um, uh Symbols and glyphs, glyphs um, in his paintings, and they're they're very compelling. He laid them out in a grid form. Um, they're semi-abstract, um, and they're um, uh, really uh, ponderous and and interesting in a way um, that uh, that is a great addition to um, the art of the period. Interesting, so, you know, interesting. being able to bring yeah. that piece out and mm-hmm. to show it and to um, take a look at who Elwood Graham wa- is uh, and was um, is really an important function of the show um, and the exhibition. So that's one piece that I, I think is um, really uh, uh, compelling for a lot of the reasons um, that we're doing this exhibition. Katie Lee Coven, what, um, what, what piece would you choose maybe to describe for us? Well, even though Bolton's already mentioned it, I'm going to go back to the Ruth Asawa sculpture um, because it is on the cover of the book, but also it's a piece that we really celebrate and are proud to have at the museum. And also, when you visit the newly reopened museum, um, which we've, we have a, a new expansion with a, a lobby and a cafe and a museum shop, so when you come in, it'll be a very different experience for you, um, and new gallery space, new collection storage. But when you come into that new lobby, you will be greeted by our Ruth Asawa sculpture because we um, had the architects design the lobby in such a way to accommodate this sculpture. And um, it's over 20 feet tall. Ruth Asawa... Um, she became inspired by um, process-oriented um, uh, work, such as weaving, having studied at places such as Black Mountain College in North Carolina with Joseph and Annie Albers. Um, Annie Albers was a weaver, but she spent a lot of time um, studying with Joseph Albers. And um, she also spent um, some time in Mexico and looking at indigenous craftsmen and weaving their baskets. But when you look at this piece, it's made with baling wire. So it's not in terms of weaving um, what you think of in conventional weaving. But this beautiful, over 20-foot tall, biomorphically shaped, abstract weaving, if you will, sculpture greets you when you walk into our lobby. And we just, we love that piece. And and, mm. and visitors love that piece as well. So. Yeah, it's a spectacular piece. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it really is. One that jumped out at me, this is at the end of the book because it's alphabetical, uh, Philip Christian Zimmerman and his piece, uh, American Christ, is from 1992. And uh, the essay says, following the deaths of two friends from AIDS, Philip Christian Zimmerman began this uh, painting as a meditation on suffering and salvation in response to the AIDS crisis, as well as on uh, the fact of homelessness. And uh, so it's it's a kind of uh, modeled after, you know, uh, Da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. But it's very interesting. It's uh, sort of uh, mounted with, with nails, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie Lee Coven, what would you say about this piece? 
Um, you know, I, what I would say about this piece and how it relates to other pieces that you also see is this unusual sort of approach to using um, some iconography in terms of the imagery that you see um, with an image of Christ, but also other materials um, that are commenting on the subject um, and, and his own personal experience as an artist and as a person. And um, with the nails and the wood, um, you, there are other pieces that I see throughout this collection and something I've started to see with the George's eye is the kinds of subject matter um, and forms and shapes um, that you will see um, if you spend some time with this this collection. So um, not to say more than that, because I think as an individual viewer, you'll make your own conclusions and such. But um, just um, that's what I would say about this piece, uh, mm. the Zimmerman. Bolton, do you have anything else you would want to add? Well, um, you know, the, the essay in the catalog is really pretty good, I think, on, on this piece. But, I mean, one of the things about, the you know, the nails in the side, you know, it just has to do with the, you know, the, the staggering uh, losses that we experienced during the AIDS epidemic in the 70s and, um, you know, uh, just the, you know, the sheer suffering that occurred from that. So, uh, pretty interesting. And I think Zimmerman's kind of an outsider artist, um, which is uh, another theme uh, that George uh, has sort of developed here. Um, and by outsider, I mean that, you know, he's basically you know, not affiliated with any particular um, movement or school um, and, um, you know, is sort of out there on his own in, in some ways doing work away from, uh, from the normal uh, uh, art world apparatus. So um, it's pretty interesting in that way. Mm. Kitty Lee Coven, one of your, one of the MCs you've had in your career, reading in your bio, is uh, underrepresented artist, right? Correct. Yeah. W- why, w- why that uh, emphasis for you? Um, you know, when I was um, in graduate school and and studying art history, and I became interested in focusing on modern and contemporary art, I was less interested in in mainstream sort of narratives and stories and artists and more interested in what was happening on the fringes. And um, I'm from South Carolina, but I was going into graduate school in London. And while in London, discovered this place called Black Mountain College, which I mentioned actually related to Ruth Asawa. And um, Black Mountain College was this extraordinarily important um, experimental liberal arts college um, uh, east of Asheville, North Carolina, that existed for less than 30 years. And um, and I discovered this place though, while studying in London, which I was, was like, I've never heard of this. How is this you know, possible? And so as I began looking at that school and my own interest um, and realizing that um, things such as ceramics, uh, for instance, was an interest of mine and still is, which is also what um, what makes me so proud to be the director here at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art is we have, you know, of the 5,000 objects, about 1,400 of those are um, ceramics. And um, and so um, people like Bernard Leach spent some time at Black Mountain College. He was a British potter. Um, but then you have people like... Um, Clement Greenberg, who is an uh, uh, authority, you know, art history critic uh, in uh, in the mid 20th century, who spent some time there. Um, you had just this cross pollination of people and um, and the disciplines in which they were interested in and studying um, were flattened while they were there. There was no hierarchy, if you will. And um, so I, I find that um, that to exist also with our collection. Um, there's there's not um, an attempt to create a hierarchy, whether it's in terms of material, artistic practice, genre, um, even era. You know, in the last hundred years, which is what we focus on, and um, and I and I think that's more um, true to to the nature of um, the individual experiences that we have, the variety and possibilities of creative creative expression. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's 
Yeah, interesting. Bolton Colburn, um, Collecting on the Edge, the title of the book. On the Edge, where does that phrase come from? What, is, what does that mean? <laughs> well, uh, uh, you know, we originally started off with a little bit longer title and decided that it was, it was too, maybe too ponderous, but it was Collecting on the Edge of, of Art History, which is, you know, an area that, you know, George has been collecting, you know, on, so or, or a terrain that he's, he's been um, involved with collecting in. And um, I think in, in my essay on George, I you know I call him a, a termite collector, which is a uh, a term I've, I've applied uh, from some writings by a famous uh, movie and art critic, or fam- famous movie critic and artist named Manny Farber. But um, George is sort of eating away at the boundaries, uh, the edges of art history, rather than um, going down um, the, the the main path of art history. So that's that's where that title came from. Hmm. Interesting. That's a that's a great image. Uh, eating away t- termite, eating away at the edge of of art history. Katie Lee Coven. Um, you know, uh, related to that, uh, we asked eighty one critics, art historians, curators, gallerists, artists, collectors to contribute the essays to this book. So we had over eighty writers, and the reason for that is because. There's not one authoritative voice about um, all of these individual artists. There are many people who who specialize um, on these artists, and we wanted to to be able to have as many voices of um, who who whose area of scholarship um, are specialized are reflected in the book. I'm interested in the people that come in no exposure before whatsoever. To an art to an art museum, what what sure. what do you notice from 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 those folks? Um, you know, I, when we plan exhibitions, we we certainly are considering in terms of the the text and supplementary materials that we provide that we do not want to make any assumptions about someone's level of knowledge when they come in because that would certainly. Uh, short sell our ability to build a relationship with that visitor and their interest and their ability to learn something new. And so we're very cognizant when we are planning exhibitions about the text that we write, the the print materials that we provide, and the educational programming we do, whether they're tours or art uh, engagement activities that we do in the museum. Um, so when when someone comes into the museum and when they walk through even so the collecting on the edge book will is also the catalog for the first exhibition when we reopen so um you will be able to see all of these artworks um in september um, when we reopen and um and we hope that um, when a visitor comes in and they've never experienced art that they walk away having learned a lot of things. Um, but there, as a visitor, you bring your own unique experience, right? Your own, your own perspective, your own um, expectations, maybe, if you have them, and your own knowledge. And, and so what you're willing to give in terms of your time and energy is also um, going to inform what you may take away. Right, right. Bolton Colburn, uh, before we close, I'm interested to follow up on uh, this idea of risk. You, you've described George Wanless as a risk taker, as a collector, um, and, and we've talked about how that can pay off. Uh, is there a downside to that? Do you, or, or is it, <laughs> and you, you know, not well, asking you to name, name any, <laughs> there's a any downside artworks. downside to that, obviously. You, yeah. know, you, can, uh, you can acquire things that you think have promise, and, <clears throat> and they end up not having that promise. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, George... Um, has an uncanny, uh, you know, I shouldn't say uncanny. He, he's a he's a pretty um, studied um, collector, and that is, you know, he does a, a lot of research on what he's doing, um, and then applies his own intuition to to the equation as well. Um, and having collected over thirty years, he's got a pretty good um, intuition and, and sense uh, that he has developed. So I would say there's a very, I mean, he's been extraordinarily um, successful in terms of uh, being able to call out artists and certain movements um, 
that have have been ignored and and, and given them, uh, you know, given uh, the museum some wonderful pieces uh, as a result. So that that's pretty extraordinary. And you know, there's a something I wanted to go back to too, which is this um, thing that differentiates the uh, collection at NEMA from um, other collections across the country. And I, I, I didn't say this, and um, I should have said it, but uh, most museums uh, uh, across the country uh, predominantly rely on gifts um, to the collection uh, in order to build it. And that's a really um, haphazard way to build a collection. You're not actually going out and, and choosing something specifically because you think you you need it for for various different reasons. Rather, you're sort of um, waiting for the gen- generosity of an individual to give you something that you hope would would uh, help fill in the collection, but oftentimes it doesn't. So uh, Katie mentioned this figure before, but there's basically 5,000 things in the collection. A thousand of those things have been have been purchased through the um, through the foundations that have that George is in George and his his uh, board are in control of, and that's an extraordinarily high ratio, um, uh, unparalleled in any museum that I can think of other than, you know, an institution like the Getty, which has billions and billions. Interesting. Just a couple of minutes left. Uh, so, Katie Leekhoven, um, the as we look beyond the reopening, of course, that's the next big thing, September, the, the reopening, uh, renovated, uh, expanded Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. What's top of mind for the future of the museum beyond beyond that? Sure. So because of the number of artworks and collecting on the edge, um, I should say that there's a part one and a part two. Part one will open September 15th, and part two will open in January of 2019. And there is some overlap um, there. But um, at, so that, uh, in terms of exhibitions, that will be... Um, uh, what we reopen with next year. And uh, one of the things I'm very excited about in terms of our expansion and renovation is that visitors are going to not really recognize the museum and you'll navigate it in a very different way than you did before. So just the way you walk through the spaces is really kind of the opposite of how you used to enter and, and navigate the spaces. And we've also added some walls and removed some walls and really thought about um, the viewer experience and the visitor's experience. Um, uh, thinking beyond next year um, and uh, and into the future, one of the things we'll continue doing is growing um, our mobile art truck programming. And, um, and we have some really exciting plans both for K through 12 and community and collaborations with um, faculty and students for the mobile art truck. And um, if you don't know about the mobile art truck, it's really this, the truck is intended to be used for various reasons. And we've piloted a lot of different types of things. Um, But it's a way for us to get out of the museum and take the museum to the community um, to southern Utah, around the state, um, and a way to introduce people to the museum as well in hopes that they also will come to the museum. So we'll be at the farmer's market this summer, as we have been um, in uh, the last summer as well. So you can see the mobile art truck there. And then in terms of exhibitions, um, in the future, we are looking at some solo exhibitions of contemporary artists, um, one right now that um, I've been working on is an exhibition of work by David Mizell called Proving Ground, um, which is an exhibition um, focused on Dugway Proving Ground. Um, After over a decade of requests to the Pentagon, he was granted access to um, photograph um, Dugway, which is a top secret uh, biological and chemical research facility. It's about and the or grounds it's about 800,000 acres uh, southwest of Salt Lake City so it's relevant to our local history but largely unknown um, to us in terms of um, what it does and today and historically so that's uh, an exhibition we're looking at and um, some other collection-based exhibitions we're planning Um, one will be to focus on ceramics um, and celebrating um, Nora Eccles Harrison and how we've continued to grow that portion of the collection as well. 
And um, yeah, there's a lot of things that we're looking at. We've, mm-hmm. We have some exhibitions planned for two and three years out at this point. So it's very exciting to be able to uh, reopen and really think strategically about our audience and interest and to think about the future of the museum. You're listening to Access Utah, a conversation there with uh, Katie Lee Coven, who is uh, the museum's executive director and chief curator. We're talking about the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, which is looking forward to its grand reopening on September 15th after renovation and expansion. We also talked there with uh, writer, curator, and museum director Bolton Colburn, and previously a conversation with Michael Duncan who is an independent curator and corresponding editor for Art in America. And the book is Collecting on the Edge, Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. This program today has been a part of Utah State University's Year of the Arts. Coming up tomorrow, we uh, hope you'll join us as we revisit one of our favorite conversations uh, from the past. This is from 2014, when I had a chance to uh, welcome into our UPR studios Anthony Durr, author of New York Times bestseller, All the Light We Cannot See. It's about a blind French girl and German boy whose paths collide in occupied France as both try to survive the devastation of World War II. Anthony Durr is a wonderful writer, wonderful conversationalist. He says this novel is about the magic of radio, propaganda, a cursed diamond, children of Nazi Germany, puzzles, snails, the Natural History Museum in Paris, courage, fear, bombs, a magical seaside town of Saint-Malo in France, and the ways in which people, against all odds, try to be kind to one another. Anthony Durr, a conversation tomorrow. And then on Monday, a very exciting program, there's an exhibit is ongoing at the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River. It's titled Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers. And the river guide in question is legendary river runner Ken Slight. So we'll be hearing from Ken Slight on tape. And we'll be talking with uh, UPR produce, UPR friend and uh, radio producer Martha Hamm and one of the Kitchen Sisters. Davia Nelson will join us. We'll hear some uh, tape from uh, some of the Kitchen Sisters uh, series. Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers. That's coming up on Monday. Hope you join us for those programs. And thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company's 2018 Dinner and Discussion, Saturday, June 23rd and Saturday, July 7th at the Riverwoods Conference Center. Presentations, discussions, and interactions with the actors, directors, and or designers. Ticket details at lyricrep.org. Say your family's been running a manufacturing company since 1890. You thought you'd seen everything, and then it got to be a global economy. When you ask me today to compete against China on a piece-price basis, it's just, it's not a fair comparison at all. I'm Kai Rizdal, American Manufacturing, Part 2, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. There is something like a nervous system in the forest. On the next Radio Lab. How does a plant know which way to turn so that it can find water? Could those leafy green critters in our garden be uprooting our idea of what it means to think? The below-ground structure. Whoa! It looks so much like a brain. And I've been looking around lately, and I know that intelligence is not unique to humans. (laughs) Smarty Plants on the next Radio Lab. Join us Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan.